Right. Um, well, this is very uh, daunting. Thank you all very much for coming out on a cold winter's night. Of course, maybe it, you're here because it's warmer here than sitting at home, so that's all right. So take advantage of the university heating for, for the next hour or so. Um, yeah, great pleasure to talk. Um, some of you may have seen me before. I've actually tried to put in some new material, you'll be pleased to know, um, but that might mean also I'm a little bit you know, nervous and hesitant about it, but we'll see how it, how it goes. Um, first of all, I'd like to give thanks to uh, Winton Capital Management, the hedge fund that has endowed my chair and pays for me, to, allows me to be able to do all this stuff rather than being a proper academic. And um, we run a website, Understanding Uncertainty, which features all sorts of stuff. You can put your coincidences on there. You can do all, learn about lotteries. You can do all sorts of things. You can look at me on YouTube, taking my clothes off if you want. If you want. Um, we've got, we go into schools. I mean, we're trying to do more and more about education, the way that probability and risk and stats are taught in schools. So that's uh, the big project now we, we're working on. Um, as, uh, as was mentioned, I did this TV program, which had a viewing figures of about eight people, but never mind, that's what you get on BBC4. But it did involve me jumping out of a plane, so I do take, try to do risky things. But that perhaps was the most riskiest thing of all I did, risking body, life, and particularly reputation. So, um, but I'm not going to talk about that today. But the first thing I'm going to mention is that this year, 2013, is International Year of Statistics. Now, of course, you already knew that, um, and you're already planning your street parties, no doubt. But um, just in case, just to give you a warm-up to that, that summer of joy, um, the, the university and the MRC between them are organising a series of public talks um, here over the next few months, couple of months, with some very distinguished speakers, ah, none of whom are statisticians, of course, um, but never mind. Um, we've got Mike Rawlins, who's going to finish as head of NICE next month, which would be great, because I hope he'll be really outspoken. Tim Harford from More or Less, and then John Beddington, who also will have finished as government chief scientific advisor. So let, with luck, they won't be bound by that sort of diplomatic um, reserve that they would otherwise have to be. So please put those in your diaries. Okay, um, I'd like to also give some thanks to Full Fact, um, which is a great organization and from which I've taken at least two of my stories today. I'm going to be going through lots of stories today, mainly from newspapers. That's where the content I'm going to show. But my motivation is, is this. Does, it, does anyone identify with this? You wake up, you turn on the Today program, and there's a whole lot of old drivel about some report or science or some study with a whole lot of people talking without any apparent comprehension of what numbers mean. And it just drives me mental. So I shout at the radio in the morning. It's not good, not good for me at all to get so upset. So I'm trying to do something about it. I'm trying to set up a structure for understanding some of the numbers. Now, there's one of the numbers. People who saw that last week, you, everyone heard that story, the curse of the killer sausages. And um, I, now, the first thing I've got to say, because uh, some of my colleagues are co-authors on this study, is that this is not a shabby statistic. Oh, no, 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 no. no. It's actually a rather unshabby statistic, I think. But we'll come back to it, because this is the kind of stuff that we, that we get on our, you know, with our breakfast every day. Okay, so sometimes this sort of nonsense that we hear, which I'm going to show quite a lot of, is just incompetence. We've got to put it down to incompetence. Now, this, this is a lovely one, um, which you may have seen. <laughs> just beggar's belief, doesn't it? It's so beautiful. I got that off, off Twitter, in fact. Again, I, that's not one I found myself. But so suddenly you've got to give... The, and it, this is a nice, another bit of just sheer incompetence of a headline writer. Notice this story last year. The number of people waiting more than four hours in A&E in England has nearly doubled. 
So they said A&E waiting times nearly double. No, no, it didn't say that at all. It doesn't bear any resemblance. Actually, very quickly, in a couple of hours, they changed the headline because people were tweeting about it, just saying, look at this nonsensical headline. But I got it quick before they took it down. So you've got to be, you've got to be quick to spot all this nonsense. Um, and this one, this is a nice one. Um, we wanted to increase deliciousness by 200%, so we put two bars in each pack. Now, as I said, I do a lot of schools talks, and it's always working out you know, what age, how old do they have to be before they get that joke, and how long it takes them to get, to get it. So that was a nice a little advert. So sometimes it's just incompetence. Sometimes it's not incompetence. Sometimes it's just deliberate. So here's what I regard as one of the first shabby statistics of today. Daily Telegraph, last month or so, uh, 3,000 more patients have died needlessly in hospital. So this followed the Midstaff's inquiry, and this is about looking into uh, five other hospitals, um, into excessive mortality. The same warning sign exposed the needless deaths of up to 1,200 patients at Midstaff's. Notice the phrase, up to. As soon as you see the words, up to, you need to be really suspicious. But you need to be even more suspicious about that 1,200 figure because there's no basis for it whatsoever, as we'll come to at the moment. So the um, 3,000, what do they mean by these 3,000 needless deaths? This sounds like rather a lot. Um, what they've done is take these hospitals that had above-average mortality. Yeah, first of all, you've got to explain how they do this. Is if every patient going into hospital, they work out using a formula and a, a probability of you dying while you're in hospital within 30 days. That's just, and they add those up over all, the over all the people going in hospital, you get an expected mortality. Now, on the, by definition, half of hospitals will have a greater than expected mortality, and half will have less. That's, that's how averages work. Half of, you know, if it's a, these are medians, half will be above, half will be, a, be below. But what they've done is taken these hospitals and looked at all the ones, all the people who died above their expected and said these deaths were needless. In other words, every time, um, you know, every death above average is a needless death. It's completely inappropriate. And where does this 1,200 come from? I mean, I think this is just a mendacious campaign against the, um, uh, against the NHS, the Telegraph and the Daily Mail are having, but uh, perhaps I shouldn't say that. Okay, um, so my first, I'm going to put a, a series of morals up in yellow. My moral, first moral for today is exaggerated headlines. They're the things to watch out for. Because the sub-editors write the headline, not the, not the article and not the um, journalist. And so quite often you can see quite a decent article, but with the ridiculous headlines. We'll find some of those as well. Okay, so how, where did this 1,200 come from? Well, it's interesting to go actually to the Francis Report, which nobody seems to have done. Actually, admittedly, it is 1,400 pages. And when you search it, you find on page 422 this table, which was an estimate in um, uh, mid-staffs of how many deaths there were. Well, it's the actual how many deaths there were each year and how many you would have expected given the case mix in mid-staff. So this is the excess deaths, the observed minus expected which goes along, into, you know, it's positive, apart from uh, down in the last year, it's positive. Now, you can argue about the way these expecteds are calculated, but as it is, the point is that over the period in which was actually all the, the concern was about, you've got perhaps 400 deaths above those expected, now, and those are not needless deaths. So there's 1,200 needless deaths, which is quoted again and again and again about mid-staffs has got no basis. It was actually you know, a leaked figure. You cannot find the source for that figure anywhere at all. So, um, and Francis said, it's always important to keep in mind that a higher rate of unexpected deaths cannot be translated into a number of avoidable deaths. 
So he says that all the time, completely ignored by the coverage. So I think that, you know, this is an example of really shabby statistics, the way these have been quoted. Okay, but surely nobody is so stupid as to think that everybody's got to be better than average. <laughs> ah. The Guardian, 2009. This is a nice one. Child obesity forecast successes, says report. A separate opinion poll yesterday suggested that 50% of obese people earn less than the national average income. <laughs> this is... This is a disgrace. Yeah. And the, the health secretary said this report makes a particularly disturbing reading. <laughs> is that beautiful? Uh, it really can happen that, that these things can get in the newspaper. So you've got to keep your eye open for these, though. Um, these are great ones. Okay. Now, people may have seen this study, but you might not. It didn't get much coverage. It nearly got a lot more coverage than it did because the authors of this study, the French authors of this study on, on feeding GM food and, and to rats, tried to stop anyone looking at it before it was published. In a, this is what the BBC says this in a very, you know, very understated way. In a move regarded as unusual by the media, the French research group refused to provide copies of the paper, although it was a peer-reviewed paper, unless they signed non-disclosure agreements they, to prevent the journalists from approaching third-party researchers for comment. They did not want anyone to comment on this paper before it got all its coverage. Fortunately, the embargo was broken by some French journalists. Um, a lot of people got the paper, including me. We all made comments about it, saying what rubbish it was, and it hardly got any coverage at all in this country. And France got massive coverage, unfortunately, and it caused a great big fuss. Um, so the second moral, no if there's no independent comment on a statistic that appears, if no one's actually critiqued it to distrust it, this was the paper. It was peer-reviewed. How it got into this journal, I don't know, because it's completely rubbish. Um, five, and they, they claim 50% of males and 70% of females died prematurely, compared with only 30% and 20% of the control group. That 30% is three. There are only 10 rats. When you say 30%, and all the coverage is 30%, 30%, they meant three. Three out of 10. So the next moral, of course, is small. If there's only a few people, a few observations, maybe we shouldn't take too much notice of this stuff. We've got to look at the size, look at the precision of what's going on. There's another one. Did you see this one last week? Did you see this one? This has got quite a lot of coverage. Video games helping children with dyslexia. Um, again, there's some people have blogged on this, saying it would be great if this were true. However, this is only based on 10 children. Ten children spent, you know, with sessions playing the video game, and then they were compared with ten other children not exposed to the game. It's almost, it's pathetically small. It got enormous coverage, and yet actually was a very poor study without any power calculations. We know, you know, really um, quite inappropriate for it to be, actually for it to be published. Um, you know, certainly in, a, um, in its current, in its format as it was. So. You know, that's a, that's a, a, real a real example of watching out for the sample size. Okay, what about, the, these are scientific studies. What about the other statistics? Ed Miliband, surely he knows better. Surely he knows better. This is a nice one in the Sun a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we are in the relegation youth unemployment. Only crisis hit Spain. It's the higher numbers of young unemployed than the UK. Yes, he's right. If we look at the statistics for the numbers of youth unemployment, we are second highest as Spain in terms of the number of youth unemployed. We've actually got, that's because we've got so many youth. This is the absolute number of people. If we look at the rates per thousand of, of or you know, actually percentage, we're right down here, in, well into the bottom half in terms of youth unemployment. It's still very high, 20%, terrible, but nothing like the rest. 
So that is, that is shabby. That is shabby and um, can be detected, really, just by looking, thinking, well, what does he really mean? What does he mean? What does he mean? Um, so we, and we, we think, though, OK, that's Ed Miliband. We think we might do better with official statistics. Surely we can believe them. Unemployment figures. Surely, you know, if it says unemployment's gone up, it's gone up. Here we are, worrying jobless rights. 38,000 extra unemployed in June. This was last year, so in 2011. Is this a real... Surely we can believe these... Well, no, it's really upsetting. Did you know that unemployment wasn't based on counting the number of people unemployed? It's based on a survey. It's just based on a survey. So there's error, uncertainty attached to this, and big uncertainty. But goodness me, you have to search for it. You have to go into an ONS, Office of National Statistics spreadsheet, go right down to table A11, and then buried in the middle of this is the number 38,000 and the error on it, which is plus or minus 87,000. <laughs> Yeah, it could be positive, it could be negative, who knows what it is. It's, it's extraordinary. And the change on year, 32,000, plus or minus 111. <laughs> they haven't got a clue how many people are unemployed. And yet people, you know, whole political careers depend on this, everyone makes a fuss. This is really extraordinary. And it's not appreciated because you, can't, you don't see the original data. You can't find it. Third or fourth, or I don't know, I've lost count already. Moral, moral. Original information, is it available? Can you actually find out what these numbers are based on? Because unless you can, you just, they're going to be spun for you, and you can't trust what you, what you can see. So trying to find the basic numbers. Okay, next one. This is the popular one. This is, this is the sort of thing we're used to seeing a lot. The terrible risks we're facing from everything. Um, taking paracetamol linked to blood cancer. Taking paracetamol regularly could almost double the chance of getting a relatively rare form of cancer. <laughs> four doses of paracetamol four times a week. For heaven's sake, you've got to take all that. And it could double your chance of blood cancer. So these are the, you know, what you're saying this, you do all this stuff and you get an increased risk. So this is the idea of higher risk. Oh my God, we've got a higher risk. And you can spot this all the time happening. This was, a, I don't know anyone saw this last week, fascinating coverage. The WHO did a report on the possible health effects of Fukushima radiation. And um, they, they, in America, they got the wonderful, you know, small earthquake, nobody hurt type headlines. WHO sees low health risk from Fukushima accident, New York Times. Um, oh, I've gone too far, I think. Yeah, Wall Street Journal, tiny cancer risk after Japan nuclear accident, says the WHO. So really, you know, minor thing. You go to the Guardian, 70% higher increased risk for females in Fukushima. This is exactly the same report. What they did was pick on the one big relative statistic they could find. In fact, you know, it's the report shows very low risk. I mean, of course, the biggest health risk, the biggest health impact from Fukushima is going to be the harm done to the people who've been evacuated in terms of their mental health in particular. So that's, and that's what the, this report concludes. You wouldn't believe it by seeing The Guardian. I thought I expected slightly better from The Guardian, but this was an outrageous bit of, um, of reporting. Okay, we're used to this kind of stuff. Now, how can we deal with these things, these relative risks? Here we go, back to the bacon sandwich. Um, bacon sandwich raises the risk of pancreatic cancer by almost a fifth, a daily bacon sandwich. So this is, let's believe that for a moment. But pancreatic cancer is a horrible cancer, but it's very rare. Um, it was only one source, Cancer Research UK, gave the absolute risks. They said it's actually a lifetime risk of pancreatic cancer, about 1 in 80. So what that means is that 400 people, about as many as in this room, um, sitting down to their smug Cambridge breakfast every day, 
as I'm sure you all do, then sadly, uh, five of you will get pancreatic cancer during your lifetime. Now, if all of you sat down every morning and had that instead, a great big greasy three-rasher bacon sandwich, then according to this research, that many would get pancreatic cancer. So did you notice the difference? That's, 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 that's it. That's it. One of you. One, one, one. Four, imagine all of you stuffing your gobs with that every morning. as one extra. That's the impact. That's the story. Now, it doesn't sound so good. It? it doesn't sound so impressive in that, expressed in that way. But we can do that to any story we, we see. Here's another one, independent. Two glasses of wine a day triples risk of mouth cancer. Typical sort of stuff you get. Hang on, this is two, this is pretty large glasses, 250 mils, that's a third of a bottle. So it's about seven or eight units, more than double it, so you're slugging it down. And um, oral cancer is very rare, only nine per 100,000 per year it affects. So if 10,000 people stuffing their, you know, swilling down the wine every day, um, two more would get oral cancer each year. So now, is this, you know, is this such a big deal? So we've got a mechanism for shifting from these relative risks that journalists are so fond of to absolute risks. And fortunately, because this is happening more and more, um, uh, I won't talk about it now, but I'm, I'm on, the, on the committee that's set, designing the new cancer screening leaflets in which everything is going to be reported in terms of absolute risks, in terms of 200 women being screened, what you'd expect to happen. So, oh, back to the process meat. Okay, this is, and I brought a prop here because I can't resist it, because um, the whole point about this one is that the killer sausage. And um, so I brought a killer sausage, a few killer sausages. Here we are, here we are. This is the global health threat to us all. I had to fill in a special health and safety risk assessment for bringing this lethal weapon. Mm. Oh, God, it's good. Um, they're almost exactly 50 grams. Um, mm. Sorry. Which is the um, mm. careless pork cost life. Uh, now, look, look at the risks I'm taking on your behalf. Pork sausage there. Lovely headline from the sun, my favourite headline. Careless pork cost life. Now, this, um, this, here's a bit of maths. I thought I was going to bring a bit of maths into it. A bit of maths. Um, that, this study, um, big epic study, uh, had half a million people, followed them for 12 years, and estimated that... Um, Eating 50 grams of processed meat a day, as one of those a day, mm -hmm, um, was associated with a hazard ratio of about 1.1. Now, some methods of estimation they did push that higher, but I think I'm going to just take the 1.1, 10% excess risk, which is reasonable. Now, as a hazard ratio means that your annual risk of death is increased by about 10% if you eat one of those every day, a sausage every day. Now, is that, is that of worry? What does it mean? Well, there's a nice formula, which you could remember, and do this little mental trick, and it's actually some beautiful maths goes underneath it, that if your hazard ratio is H, then if you've got two people, one of whom has uh, got a, their ordinary diet, and the other, who, whom, the other of whom has the diet but eats an extra sausage a day, so the two people compared with who's going to die first? Well, it turns out the chance of the sausage eater dying before the non-sausage eater from their sausage a day obeys the formula H over 1 plus H. So if H is 1.1, you get 52%. So that 10% extra risk, which sounds, whoa, that's quite big, actually it just means your chance of dying first, instead of being 50-50, is 52-48. Not actually that huge. The point is that it's completely unpredictable about when you're going to die, how long you're going to live. Now, how can we translate that 1.1 into something perhaps slightly more comprehensible. What does it mean for me? Okay, okay, so I'm stuffing my face with that every day. 
And one point one, ten percent extra at risk. If you, let's take someone young, twenty-five-year-old. There's some twenty. They're not all. You're not all grey-haired. There must be somebody, you know, vaguely young in the audience here. And say a twenty-five-year-old who's decided to spend their life eating sausages or bacon sandwiches. So they're going to have one of those every day. It turns out that you know, if compared with their friend who isn't going to eat that, their friend is going to expect to live to about you know their eighties, maybe fifty-five to another fifty-five to um, sixty years ahead. And so this sausage eater, their friend, how much of that, their life expectancy will be reduced by that sausage eating at 10% extra risk? Now, it's quite difficult some to do. You can't do it without looking, actually doing the calculation with life tables and things like that. It turns out that that extra 10% a year over a lifetime adds up to one-year reduction. So instead of expecting to live till, say, 82, you can expect to live to 81 on average. It's not a big difference, and that's why that, that, that 52.48 shows why it's not a big difference. So one year, and you think, what, one year? Oh, I don't care about that. Um, and I always use this quote from Kingsley Amos, who said, I'm not going to give anything up for the sake of another year in a geriatric home in Western Supermare. <laughs> so, you know, so I'm going to carry on. He's going to carry on. So he, he did carry on eating and drinking. You know. So you know, we think, oh, who cares about that last year you know, dribbling away in Western Superman? We don't care about that. We're going to eat the sausage now. OK, well, fair enough. I don't mind. You know, I like them. But, but let's think of it a different way. That's, that's over the next 55 years or so, you're going to lose a year. Well, pro rata, you know, there's one in 55. That's about equivalent to about losing about a week every year, one in 52. Actually, it's about the same as losing half an hour a day, one in 48. My God, it's as if this sausage is taking half an hour off my life. I'm not, it's, I'm not unless I'm a really slow eater, it's, it's going to be, you're not going to be, it's going to be more time than I take to eat the thing. So statistically, I mean, I can't say that this sausage is going to take half an hour off my life. But statistically, it's as if it, it is. A half an hour of your life for every sausage. Also for two cigarettes, also for a couple of drinks, etc., etc. Apart from the first drink, on average, that puts half an hour in your life. So anyway, all that, that's, um, but the others cancel it out again, unfortunately. So, um, so, that, so, so that's one way to think about it, in fact, is, is that if we, if we assume this constant risk as 10% extra risk, it's half an hour for every sausage. Mm. Well, well, I think it's worth it. So, and the problem with these things is that we don't know the effect of that sausage because we can't do these huge randomized trials forcing people, half the world, to eat sausages and the other half not. I, I, I'd refuse to enter a study like that in case I was randomized to the non-sausage group. You know, I'd, say, I'd say, it's fixed. I want to have the sausages. But it's hopeless if you're letting, allowing people to volunteer. We're just observing people. We can't do the real experimentation to find out what's really true in these circumstances. So that's another problem. Um, and then, you know, we get study after study. This is the Harvard one on red meat. The interesting thing about the one my colleagues were involved in, um, oh, the one in 30. Where did the one in 30 come from? I forgot about that one. It's not a shabby, particularly shabby statistic. It was shabby the way it was reported because it made it sound like one in 30 people will die of, of um, um, you know, one in 30 people would, would have their death prevented if they didn't eat the bacon. It just meant during that study, that study period, about one in 30 could be attributed to... Um, to the to the bake, eating the um, the smoked the processed meat, whereas the reporting isn't always. Sometimes it's even worse. This one on the eating the red meat from the Daily Express said that if people cut down the amount of red meat they eat, such as steak for beagles, to less than half a serving day, ten percent of all deaths could be avoided. Now, I mean, isn't that amazing? Isn't science a wonderful thing? So, you know, ten percent of all one in ten of you could live forever. If you, if you didn't eat your steak or beef burgers, look at the harm you're doing yourself. The terrible reporting, you know, complete 
incomprehensibility. Now, but the interesting thing is that this showed uh, a real harm from red meat. The big study that's been published actually showed red meat wasn't so bad. There's some you know, suggestion that it had some harm, but nothing like processing it being very high, nothing for chicken and white meat. So the, one, that's again the problem, one of the big things. Is it just a single study? And, you know, in the, the sort of scientific process goes incrementally. We always learn, you know, things add, add. And so as a, as a sort of doing medical statistics now, I, I don't believe any single study. I take no notice of them, really, unless it's a comprehensive review of the evidence. We're putting everything together. It's really not worth taking that much notice of a single study. So I think that's, you know, another sort of little moral. Now, what about graphics? I love pictures. Now, but, of course, we've got incompetence in graphics as well. And some of you may have seen this one, which is a, a pie chart from Fox <laughs> News, which is, um, again, even my 11-year-old even my audiences can spot that this is not a very good pie chart. Now, uh, so this, well, we may be able to put that down for sheer incompetence from Fox News. Um, this, is a, this is a sort of pie chart from the Times, and... I've never been able to work out what actually what it was doing. It's completely incomprehensible. I've never really worked out what the guy was getting at when he drew that picture. So that was just sheer incompetence from the Times. Nobody, and, and it's just sort of, nope, no idea what it means. Never mind. <laughs> so, um, but actually, it's, it's not always incompetence. Sometimes this manipulation with numbers and pictures is deliberate. And, of course, I'm actually going to use Fox News again, which is lovely. This is the kind of thing that they're very fond of. Um, Bush cut, tax cuts expire, it goes from 35% to 39.6%. Yes. And a very suitable choice of axis there to exaggerate the difference. And it's absolutely outrageous. But no, you haven't seen anything yet. No, this is the classic one. Unemployment rate under President Obama. Look at that. You know, it's just keeping up, going, 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 going. Oh, hang on. Anyone see anything strange about that graph? The last figure is 8.6%. But it's, it's actually higher than 8.8%. <laughs> Isn't that extraordinary? They just completely fiddled the picture. Good old Fox News. What would we do without them? So that's what the data really looked like. But they didn't want to show that picture, so they made one up themselves. So that's what you did. So, you know, seeing is not believing. You never don't trust your eyes, don't trust your ears. And, of course, the point is a lot of this is to do with trust. And you have to think, you know, all the time, why am I hearing this story? Why in the Daily Mail is this wonderful story about dried fruit being just as healthy as fresh? Could it, because, could it be because the World Nut and Dried Fruit Congress <laughs> has sent them a press release and they've just rewritten it? I think it could be. We have to be slightly cynical and think all the time, why am I reading this story? Not to take things at face value. Is this just puff? either because it's a company or it's somebody's reputation or something like that. And sometimes it's scientific stuff. There's just as much puff in science as there is in other things. And I have to say, sadly, particularly in psychology. Um, or this. This is a nice one. Why pretty women give birth to more girls and could lead to shorter, handsome men. So this is an interesting one. This, um, <laughs> this was a study which showed that girls rated as unattractive at seven years old had only 44% girls for first child. So, first of all, it's a slightly strange study that rates girls as being <laughs> you know, ugly at seven. And then these poor ugly girls, when they have a baby, it's 44% female rather than male. Well, and 56% um, male. It's very strange. You know, pretty women um, giving... Um, 
Yeah, pretty women giving birth to more girls. Anyway, it, it's it's ridiculous. I mean, there are there's some you know, there are things that does produce tiny sex differences in terms of this. So it's not ridiculous that it's not exactly 50-50, but this is an absurdly high figure. Statistically significant. Well, it wouldn't be statistically significant unless it was so absurdly high. I mean, it's just completely implausible. And the point is, it got publicity. If he had found that this had not shown any difference at all, he wouldn't have, I, I hate to say this, this is maybe you know, libelous or scandal, not scandalous or slanderous or something like that. I, 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 it is possible that he might not have written it up, he might not have sent it in for publication, it might not have been selected for publication, and it might not have been covered in the newspaper. I'm only hearing this because of this positive result. So this point is all the time thinking, why am I hearing this? What am I hearing? What are the processes that have gone through in order for me to hear this? And the, these, this requires real detective work sometimes. This sort of story. Study links asthma to magnetic field exposure of pregnant mothers. So, uh, you know, women exposed to magnetic fields, microwaves, mobile phones, and things like that, apparently having children with more asthma. Well, if this were true, it'd be really serious. But and it, it required, it got a lot of coverage, and um, it required real, quite detective work to find out that this was a fishing expedition. They measured all these things that these women, mothers, had been exposed to, and they measured all these child problems, health issues for their children, and found a correlation between magnetic field exposure and asthma. It was an afterthought for a study, but for something else. And this is a problem because it's, and it's actually quite a difficult one to communicate always, that if you just look hard enough, you're going to find something. And the statisticians deal with that by trying to allow for, for sort of how many tests, how many hard they've looked for stuff. But that's a very difficult thing in the newspapers because they only pick the big stories, the most extreme. But of course, medical journals do it as well. They pick the exciting stuff that's going to get the coverage, which is why the crucial thing is, am I only hearing half the picture what am I not being told? What am I not being told about how this data arose or why, you know, how it got here, what's being chosen? And of course, this leads to this paper, which I recommend to everyone, Why Most Published Research Findings Are False by John Ioannidis, which is one of the most downloaded papers from PLOS, um, Public Library of Science. And um, this is, um, just suggests that most research findings, not just in medicine but elsewhere, are actually wrong. Because the only reason they're published is because they come up with some sort of impressive positive result, and they won't be replicated when people try to replicate them. And you know, it's just, I, th I actually believe it. I'm not sure about the most, but a very substantial number are false. We don't believe what we see, which is why we need lots of more. You can't believe just a single study. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, going along, all right. Um, drug to cure Alzheimer's. Now, this is this is a typical sort of story. This is. Um, you know, this is what we like to hear. Um, lovely, potent anti-cancer drug could hold the cure to curing Alzheimer's. And you read that, and you get down to here, and it was carried out on mice. Oh, right, okay, mice. This is Daily Express in February 2012. They love this stuff. Um, the, the point is, you know, is this relevant to me? You know, they, on mice, mice, you know, is this really a cure for Alzheimer's? Have we found that? Well, maybe not. I mean, I could put this under the moral, under headlines, all sorts of stuff. It, this ticks the boxes for well, the worst sort of um, reporting of, of, of statistics and, um, and uh, evidence. Um, and then later on in the year, we've got another one. Statins hold Alzheimer's. Everything's halting Alzheimer's. And um, great, same author, same express, that thing. And, 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 and it's mice again. <laughs> oh, here we go. It's, it's always these damn mice. 
That's all it is. But we're getting, we're getting cure after cure of Alzheimer's. We're mice and mice and mice. So uh, that's you know, really an important lesson that we shouldn't... Um, we, we've, got, we've got to think, you know, is this really applicable to me? Again, why am I hearing this, etc.? These are standard lessons we can, we can hold. Now, this is, this is an interesting one as well. This is, I'm, I'm obsessed with this kind of story. There's always the, the, the pregnant mothers being exposed to something and terrible things being done to their children. What's, what's this? Mobile phones, yeah. Behavioral problems in children. So using your phone while pregnant can lead to behavioral problems in children. And they found this, you know, pretty iffy science, I think, and then make this great big claim. Although it's premature to interpret these results as causal, yeah, I should say so, we are concerned that early exposure to cell phones could carry a risk, which, if real, which it probably is, <laughs> which it probably isn't, would be of public health concern given the widespread use of this technology. I mean, it's an extraordinary statement to make in, a, in an academic paper. How that gets to the referees, I just don't know. So the point about this is that you, you continually in these things get unjustified advice. Therefore, you should, people should stop using their mobile phones when they're pregnant, etc., etc. That people carry a study and then tell everybody what to do. So one of the other warning signs is, you, do you get unjustified advice or not? And I must say, the people on the, uh, the sausage study, last week's sausage study, were rather good in that they didn't say give up sausages or give up bacon. You know, these, this, is a, you know this is a major health risk. Mm. Go on. Go on, it's good. Um, sorry about that. I hope you've had your supper. <laughs> um, but they said, don't go overboard on it. You know, they gave very sensible conclusions to their analysis. Well, Okay, now here's a nice one. Yeah. Fizzy drinks make teenagers violent. Again, this ticks every box. This ticks almost all the ones I've gone through, all my yellow messages, fizzy drinks. You know, the ludicrous headline. Drinking five fizzy drinks a day makes teenagers more likely to act violent. What they did was get a gang of Boston school kids and get them to fill in a questionnaire saying how many fizzy drinks they had and how violent they were. <laughs> and they... So they ticked a box saying how violent they were, and they found a correlation between drinking fizzy drinks and, um, and being violent. And then they conclude that fizzy drinks make teenagers violent. Well, maybe it's the other way around. Maybe you just get so hot and sweaty after being violent that you need, <laughs> you need lots of fizzy drinks to cool yourself down. You know, it's, <laughs> which way is it going? Or possibly there could be some other factor that might be related to both fizzy drinks and violence, assuming we believe these nonsensical questionnaires. And, of course, people try to adjust for this sort of stuff, but you can never do that adequately. So the big, you know, on all this stuff, this ticks all the boxes. It's just another study. It's a ridiculous headline. You're just observing people, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So all of that stuff. And then, the, you know, this thing is just think, can it be explained by something else? Is there something else that we're not being told about where, um, which can explain all this? And, uh, you know, I have to say, that I, I must give a plug to the Science Media Centre. The Science Media Centre is a fantastic organisation that I'm signed up to, and I encourage anybody, any sort of scientist in the audience to sign up for them, who get the stuff early, the day before publication. And what you do is get sent these papers, and you've got like an hour to read it and write some comments on it, and write, you know, very brief little... And, and those go out to the journalists, and they get used. They get used by Reuters, by... by um, AP, they get used by, by in all the, a lot of the newspapers. You have to be very quick to respond, but it's enabled all sorts of stuff to be critiqued and commented on and actually stopped in some extent. Some, that that um, GM Foods one, the, the journalists were really grateful for it to be rubbished by the scientists. The journalists, science journalists knew it was rubbish, and, but the editors, of course, loved, you know, loved to put this sort of stuff in, and it was a good way of keeping it out of the newspapers. 
So, to, um, to conclude, oh yeah, I've gone a bit quicker than I thought I would. Oh well, I've got time for questions. Um, to conclude, th this, is, I've, this is the things I've gone through. And um, just observing people, yet another single thing might be explained by something else. Small, blah, 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 blah. So these are all the things. And the ones I think are particularly important, but particularly tricky, are this business of working out, what am I not being told? What, 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 is, it, what is it I'm not being told about? Um, now, how do we remember these things? How you, and um, uh, with, with uh, Kevin McConway, we worked out this little mnemonic, which you might like. So there we go. And then we start moving the letters around, and we switch those, we switch those, switch those, switch those. Can you guess? Can you see the pattern? Can you see what's coming? <laughs> Yes, yes. <laughs> I'm t I know it's a terribly contrived joke. It really is. We worked so hard on that joke. <laughs> it really is pathetic, I know. But it, it, it sticks in the mind about, you know, when you hear these voice in the morning and you hear these numbers, you hear these stories about what do you... We called it... Um, we've called it score and ignore. Radio listeners' guide to ignoring health stories. When to just turn over and go back to sleep when, when this health story is being discussed. So those are the lessons. You can memorize them. I'll test you on them later. And, um, and with that, I'll stop. And I'm very happy we've got some nice time to answer questions. So thank you very much indeed. What do you think should be done about this? Uh, should we regulate the media? Should we oh. teach people better or something else? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I, I mean one thing that was done, which was interesting, I don't know what will happen about it, is that um, the head of the Science Media Centre, Fiona Fox, presented to Leveson, saying that this, showing stories like this, just saying this is disgraceful. You know, you know these, a lot of these headlines are just lies, actually. You know, they're just they're lies. They're just not, not correct at all. So, um, and Leveson said, and she said, oh, we could get a set of guidelines on one page, one side of A4, for the press to sign up to. So Leveson said, well, go away and do it. So I sat down with her and some journalists, and we produced it. We got a one-pager, which essentially summary really a lot of these points, just rewritten as, as guidance to the journalists, which went into Leveson and is in the Leveson report. It's on the website and things like that. Now, it depends what you know, will what, happen about Leveson, about whether people can sign up for it. It would be a voluntary agreement. But we had the Daily Mail involved. We had Telegraph. We had all these people involved. It worked really well. So um, that's one, one thing. I mean, I go into you know, newspapers and you know, ITN and places like that to talk about this stuff. I think, I think one of the most powerful things is, is not to let people get away with it. You know, I think the movement towards tweet, Twitter, blogging, programs like More or Less, and uh, things where, where, you know, so number, oh, and, and the other thing is the, the Statistics Authority. Andrew Dillnett, for example, gave um, Ed Miliband a bollocking for that, um, for that unemployment one. So the Statistics Authority is trying to hold politicians to account for these things as well. So there's multiple ways. Just showing you can't get away with rubbishy numbers. You shouldn't be able to get away with rubbishy numbers. And uh, in a way, I mean, I picked out some really bad ones. I actually think it's getting better. I don't think it's quite as bad as it used to be. The headlines are still a real problem because that's the sub-editors and they're a law unto themselves, essentially. But I think actually the handling of the numbers in the news is actually improving on the whole. So on that basis, has it got better since Leveson came out? Oh, I don't, yeah, I'm not sure. 
I mean, there's so much arguments about Leveson and what to do with it and whether there should be statutory powers or, or what on that. I mean, that's all up in the air. Um, again, you, you would hope that, I mean, newspapers are probably being a lot more careful about how they, how they talk about people's private lives or whatever. Um, and, uh, I, you know, I, I suppose, and I thought it was very good of Leveson to introduce this into Leveson. You know, it's nothing to do with phone hacking, it's just science reporting. But actually, I think it is an integral part of, of, sort of you know, the integrity of the press, that they can get away with actually nonsensical stories. Um, I think it's pretty outrageous. But, but I think to many people, you know, this would just be seen to be rather nitpicking, nerdy stuff, which is a shame. Uh, how are we going to um, differentiate between a good report and a bad report? Yes. Yeah, well, I mean, it's sort of these these kind of things. I mean, I, I would look for an awareness of some of these issues. For example, the, the, definitely the independent comments, getting independent comments from, other, from a multi, multiple you know, uh, viewpoints. Um, I, you know, identifying when something's only a single study, and in particular, in the Leveson guidelines we reported, it should be really clear whether this goes against the collected mass of the evidence. The point is that newspapers love something that's different from what everybody has done before, but it's not science how science works. I, what, what, they could be true, what, sort of by chance, or, uh, <laughs> or just badly reported? Yes, oh, yes, yeah, yeah. No, no, I mean, that's the problem, is, dist is distinguishing between something that's actually, might be quite a good core, but incredibly badly reported, um, etc. So it's quite difficult to see what, what, you've got to identify the difference between the actual source of the information and then what's been done with it in the process, um, and to identify whether there is anything decent, and actually... This is, a lot of this is to do with the reporting. Um, um, yeah, this is mainly to do with the reporting rather than the quality of the study itself. But that, of course, is an integral issue as well. But, you know, uh, yeah, really one needs a, a, a second set to identify whether the study was appropriately done or not as well. Yeah. You explained how um, eating processed meat might have been, the dangers of it might have been misrepresented. You've been eating a sausage to do that. But what I find difficult to understand is how, without a control, anybody can know how many people or what percentage of the public are eating processed meat. How do you do that? Oh, well, I mean, we should, I don't know if there's anyone here from the EPIC study. I mean, they had half a million people around Europe. I mean, there's been, there's 20,000 in Norfolk being followed up at the moment of people in terms of their habits, um, their eating habits, etc. Oh, you ask people how much they eat and you measure them, you measure their exercise, you measure all sorts of stuff. There's people volunteer for this and uh, are followed up for year after year after year. And you count the bodies, essentially. And then try to relate it to what their lifestyle. I mean, there's all to do with lifestyle habits. But it's incredibly difficult to tease out because the sort of person who's stuffing their faces with a bacon sandwich is likely to be the person who probably drinks a lot and doesn't do much exercise and, you know, might smoke or whatever. So trying to tease those out is quite tricky. Ideally, everybody would only have one bad habit. <laughs> you could just, if you were just allowed one bad habit, and I, I know, I think I would volunteer for sausages or something like that. And, uh, and, and, and then you can be much clearer to identify, whoa, the sausage group are doing really badly. And then you can say, yeah, they, that's, that's the sausages. But it's, it's unfortunately not quite like that. And uh, bad habits tend to cluster, as I know only too well. 
Sorry, I won't go on, but surely the people who are more vulnerable, as it were, are not the people that are going to be involved in a trial, are they? Ah, ah, yes, yeah, that's the other thing, is that you do want people with a good range of, of bad habits. You know, you want to, you don't want all, I mean, and that is part of the problem, is that the people who volunteer are sort of probably people like in this audience who, you know, vaguely probably look after themselves or whatever. And, uh, and so you, that, that is, again, one of the problems. Um, it's always the problem in all medical research about, you know, the, the, the healthy volunteer effect. Um, you don't have the real shambles along, which, which could give you quite a lot of information. So, um, yeah, again, these things are really difficult to tease out. I mean, you cannot say exactly what is the causal effect, you know, of the, of the sausage eating on, on, future, on my future health. You can just look at averages. It's quite easy, it's much easier to talk about populations. You know, if everyone stopped, um, you know, they, eating so, many, so much bacon, you might have so many cases less of, of um, uh, you know, bowel cancer or something per year. That, then, you know, that's probably, you can estimate that reasonably well. But stating what that means for an individual is a, lot, is a lot trickier. I mean, I, I quite like this metaphor of losing time off your life according to your lifestyle, because you, you know, it's not real, it's not like anyone knows what the effect of this behavior would be on my life, but it's, it's, quite, it's quite handy. So the, the smoking, for example, 20 a day takes about nine years off your life on average, that's about five hours a day, so that's um, equivalent to a quarter of an hour off for every cigarette. So, you know, if you're smoking 20 a day, you're going towards your death. Instead of going at 24 hours, you're going at 29 hours a day. You're rushing towards your death, gasping away with the speed you're going. So, um, and that, so you can see the trade-offs there, you know, and the, the drink, as I said, the first drink each day is about half an hour on your life, and then the second and third is about a quarter of an hour off, because it's... A, because medicine, poison, poison, poison. It doesn't go medicine, poison, medicine, poison. You know, it goes medicine, poison, 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 like that. And, um, and so you can, you can trade those, well, you can look at those magnitudes. Whereas, you know, getting up a move, you can benefit, you can cancel, well, yeah. Yeah, it's controversial to say you can cancel them out. I, I, my public health colleagues tell me off for suggesting that you might cancel these out because it encourages trade-off behavior. Oh, my God, you know, I've done my run, now for a couple of pints. <laughs> and surely nobody would think that at all, you know. No <laughs> nobody would ever think that, yeah. But the exercise is interesting, because the um, latest, you know, again, exercise is extraordinary. Compared to being a complete, being a complete slob is really bad. There's the Epic team, the Epic Norfolk team, estimated that two hours in front of the television, on average, is half an hour of your life. That's completely sedentary behavior. And that's adjusting for total energy expenditure. It doesn't matter if you go off, you know, if you're using it up in the gym or whatever like that. Actually, just sitting down there is really bad for you. So, and then on the other side, of course, if you get up out of the sofa, get off your backside, the first 20 minutes exercise each day, on average, is about an hour on your life. And so it's pretty enormous, the benefit from the first 20 minutes, which is what you're supposed to do, moderate exercise. Fantastic benefit. After that, it's not that much, the benefit really tails off. It's really non-linear. So, you know, the next 20 minutes might get you another 20 minutes, so you better like exercising. Um, I was wondering if you, you sort of touched on it briefly, but I wondered if you had any thoughts on how the scientists themselves are doing and the journals in terms of use of statistics um, and whether it would make a difference if the published research was more easily accessible. What, the, the, the quality of the statistics in science journals? Yeah, because well, the I, temptation is obviously to sort of hype up what you've 
what you think you found yeah, yeah. to get it published? It, I mean, it varies enormously depending on the area. You know, the, I always get amazed at how the difference in statistics. Like, you know, in a medical world, um, everyone would always do a power calculation before they did a study to work out how many patients they needed, et cetera, like that. In psychology, it seems to be completely unheard of that anyone would actually work out in advance how big an effect they'd expect to see and actually do a power calculation. They just 20 a group and that's it. Boof. And, um, you know, I find that extraordinary. And these pathetic little studies like the video games and the dyslexia thing, um, you know, they, 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 they shouldn't be published in decent journals because at the same time, you should say that everything should be published somewhere. You need to have access to the, this information. But um, to give it the, the, the credibility of a, very, of a high profile journal, when, um, as I understand that one, the, um, you know, the method section is hidden away somewhere, you know, it's, it's not the, uh, you know, it's a good story, but actually the evidence is not reliable. Could, could, could I ask a question about um, branding and advertising and claims therein? Um, I've spent most of my life um, trying to fox the statisticians really by, uh, getting claims uh, approved through the so-called um, uh, approval bodies yeah. based on generally pretty spurious yeah, statistics. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the fact is that um, newspapers, media generally is funded by advertising and <clears throat> because of that they're generally receptive to shabby statistics. Um, are you suggesting, uh, and sorry, before I ask the question, the statistical people, the statisticians that work for the regulatory authorities tend to be in very short supply and they tend to be very slow moving as it happens. Well, all statisticians uh, are slow. All statisticians are slow. <laughs> so what actually happens in the real world as opposed to the academic world from possibly where you're speaking but is that the story arrives, the clever marketing people have actually made a reasonable case for their study or a semi-reasonable case and there's uh, quite a big difference between qualitative and quantitative within this area, which, which you allude to. But within quite small quantitative samples, for instance, in the skincare market, this might be down to 150 women. Yeah, and yeah. it may not be anything other than observed improvement in yeah. wrinkles or whatever. Those claims are on the television in this country, yeah. in America, in Europe, all over the world, yeah. based on extremely small unscientific but observed yeah. um, reactions. My question is, are, are you suggesting perhaps that there should be uh, some sort of kite mark for what is, what is statistically acceptable within, let's say, branding claims? Yeah, it's very interesting. There's, there's an argument within the statistical profession about that very issue. And some people are saying, yes, there should be. Others saying, you can't. You know, statistics is not something you reduce to a set of rules like that. That actually there's always flexibility and, and we would not want it to be that is an approved statistic and this is not an approved statistic. Because in, in the government there are, there are government statistics which carry with them a certain quality assurance that's, that's associated with it. So for, for national statistics that, that kite mark does exist. Um, I mean, I, for the, the whole advertising thing, but there, you know, there is the Advertising Standards Authority that you know, tries to say something about, uh, about claims about you know, the number of cats that prefer one meat over another. But, and, and I always like looking at the small print when they reveal that it's actually based on 20 cats or something. So, um, I, I, think, I think I'd say it's, it's quite difficult to police and regulate. You can just see, even in scientific journals, which after all are supposed to be, regulated in terms of the quality. It's difficult enough to do. 
um, to do it. And then, and then, of course, you know, what about websites? You know, the uh, extraordinary claims being made on websites about the benefits of various treatments, various alternative treatments and things. So I think um, it, it is very difficult to police that um, completely. Uh, you, you can try to sort of <laughs> name and shame and... Um, and you know, clearly, there are very, there are real limits about what uh, serious health claims you can make in, about. In, uh, in some in some sectors, let us say the agricultural sector, the food sector at the moment, there are various um, kite marks, standards, etc., which are partly about marketing. I accept, which tend to give you some sort of uh, vague guarantee of uh, of quality, or it's being measured in the right way. Statistics don't carry anything like that. Mm. And the only advertising, by the way, in this country that is, is pre-vetted is TV advertising. All other advertising is a total free-for-all, and you can only be post-challenged mm. um, mm. on it. Yeah. No, I think, I think it's a good point. And I think, um, again, one would hope that you know, a gradual move towards numbers receiving a greater scrutiny would mean that those things could receive more, more attention. But you're right. The, you know, numbers are used as you know, devices of argument on the whole and to give impression rather than things to be taken apart and analysed. I guess, you know, that's what we're, we're hoping to do vaguely with, the, you know, the whole idea of education, the whole idea of movement towards, um, you know, post-GCSE, uh, you know, very large-scale uh, um, engagement of, of people with, um, with mathematical ideas um, will lead to that greater critical faculty, you hope. <sighs> Difficult. <laughs> Um, are there any sources of media that we can rely on, that we can trust to report fairly accurately, or are they all similar? Oh, I don't, I, never, I don't believe a word of them, any of them. No, I don't, <laughs> no, I don't believe any of them at all. But, but actually, a lot, I mean, it's not, I've gone through, you know, finding the worst things I can find, of course. And, and on the whole, the, the science correspondence of the newspapers, even the Daily Mail, and things, are usually are not bad. The headlines are often awful. But the, the actual guts of the article is often not unreasonable at all. But of course, they're under pressure to produce stories. They, they, you know, they write stories that people want to read. And so um, you know, there's always going to be a, a preponderance of the puff type, what I, call, what I call the cats cause cancer type stories, with you know, the, the, uh, you know, the mundane everyday exposure and the dread outcome. You know, they love those, those kind of things. They just really, um, really go. Uh, really get coverage. So I, I, no, I, think, I think science correspondence on, on newspapers, I would tend to, I've got a very high opinion of. As long as the story stays with the science correspondent, once it gets into the news journalists, it's completely disastrous. Yeah. Hi there. Um, I kind of work in banking and do a lot with statistics and data all the time, although I had nothing to do with that pie chart you put up earlier, the uh, indecipherable one. Um, I guess it's a comment around the question that I think as long as we've got politicians who are trying to score points over each of the different parties, um, you're never going to get factual um, stories out there in the public domain. I mean, I talk to a lot of MPs and political bodies, and behind closed doors, they'll tell you something else and they'll agree with what you're saying, but you get them in front of a camera and it's a totally different story. I think that's a bigger problem than just I'm trying to deal with it at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> it's a rather large issue. <laughs> and this is just one little part of it, yeah. Was John Humphreys flattered? 
Oh, I don't think he took any notice. But, but I mean, in a way, I'd like to quite like have a dig at him because he's one of these people that seems to be sort of, um, ah, he's, he's fine, but he, but he, you know, carries his lack of numeracy with apparent pride, which I think is, <laughs> is not something to be proud of at all. And so, um, no, deliberately picking, picking on him as being, um, you know, a bit of a, uh, a bit of a baddie in this regard. Yeah. Just one more question. Um, there must presumably be a relationship between the shabby statistics that you've talked about in the case of media exposure and what you might call the corruption of public understanding of what counts as reliable chance and what happens in forensics, because that must be an area where this kicks in with great significance. So, for example, in court, where advocates are exploiting rather deliberately the kinds of misunderstanding that you've so graphically illustrated, is there a way of intervening there? Oh, I mean, that, that, again, is a whole new story, and there's a lot of attention being paid to that. There's a Royal Statistical Society working party on the on the law, which is producing some very good guidance for presentation of forensic evidence. Um, and it's a, but it's a really hot topic. The um, Court of Appeal just last month, I've yeah. been blogging on it, has, has apparently banned the use of um, Bayesian probability. The, the, you know, I, I teach Bayesian statistics, and the whole idea of that is that one can assign probabilities to events that have happened, but you don't know you know, what the answer was. So, you know, I can, in a Bayesian perspective, I can flip the coin and say, well, the probability that that's heads is a half, because I don't know, it's a half. And that now has been banned in the, by the British Court of Appeal. Um, we're not, he, the judge just said, oh, to give um, a probability for an event that has occurred is illusory. And so that's it, end of my life's work. You know, so <laughs> pretty, pretty, pretty tough, isn't it? <laughs> I, I teach this stuff, but no, it's illusory apparently. So, um, and, and yet, they continually use the phrase balance of probabilities to describe the balance of evidence. But they, what they mean by probabilities, I think it's actually an archaic use of the word probability because it means in terms of the, you know, the, um, uh, the probity of the argument um, on the, for and against the, each side. And so they, they, they're very mixed up in their language, very confused in the, the way they discuss these things. And uh, that's, again, a whole other business, trying to deal with that. And if anything, more difficult than this because they're convinced they know what they're doing. It's so strange, the law. They're experts on evidence, and yet they are so um, sort of um, useless at describing what evidence is. It's, it just drives you mental. You know, why? You know, they're so imprecise. They're so sloppy in their language about evidence, and that's what they're supposed to do. That's their job. Anyway, never mind. <laughs>